Robinson Crusoe, Part 16. This recording, copyright Candlelight Stories, Inc., available at candlelightstories.com. Narrated by Alessandro Chima. A Candlelight Stories audio production. The Life and Strange, Surprising Adventures of Robinson Crusoe of York, Mariner by Daniel Defoe At the same time, I contrived to increase my little flock of tame goats as much as I could, and to this purpose I made Friday and the Spaniard go out one day, and myself with Friday the next day, for we took our turns, and by this means we got about twenty young kids to breed up with the rest. For whenever we shot the dam, we saved the kids and added them to our flock. But above all, the season for curing the grapes coming on, I caused such a prodigious quantity to be hung up in the sun that I believe, had we been at Alicant, where raisins are cured, we should have filled sixty or eighty barrels, and these with our bread was a great part of our food. It was now harvest, and our crop in good order. It was not the most plentiful increase I had seen in the island, but, however, it was enough to answer our end, for, from our twenty-two bushels of barley, we brought in and thrashed out above two hundred and twenty bushels, and the like in proportion of the rice, which was store enough for our food to the next harvest, though all the fourteen Spaniards had been on shore with me, or if we had been ready for a voyage it would very plentifully have victualled our ship to have carried us to any part of the world, that is to say, of America. When we had thus housed and secured our magazine of corn, we fell to work to make more wicker work, namely great baskets in which we kept it, and the Spaniard was very handy and dexterous at this part. And now, having a full supply of food for all the guests I expected, I gave the Spaniard leave to go over to the main to see what he could do with those he had left behind him there. I gave him strict charge not to bring any man with him who would not first swear, in the presence of himself and the old savage, that he would in no way injure, fight with, or attack the person he should find in the island, who was so kind as to send for them, in order to their deliverance, but that they would stand by and defend him against all such attempts, and wherever they went would be entirely under and subjected to his command, and that this should be put in writing and signed with their hands. Under these instructions the Spaniard and the old savage went away in one of the canoes which they had come in when they were brought as prisoners to be devoured by the savages. I gave each of them a musket and about eight charges of powder and ball, charging them to be very careful of both and not to use either of them but upon very urgent occasions. This was a cheerful work, being the first measures used by me in view of my deliverance for now twenty-seven years and some days. I gave them provisions of bread and of dried grapes, sufficient for themselves for many days, and sufficient for all their countrymen for about eight days, and wishing them a good voyage, I let them go, agreeing with them about a signal they should hang out at their return, by which I should know them again when they came back, at a distance, before they came on shore." They went away with a fair gale on the day that the moon was at the full, by my account, in the month of October, as near as I could tell. It was no less than eight days I waited for them, when a strange and unforeseen occurrence intervened, of which the like has not perhaps been heard of in history. I was fast asleep in my hut one morning, when my man Friday came running into me, and called aloud, Master! Master! They are come! They are come! I jumped up, and regardless of danger, went out as soon as I could get my clothes on, 
through my little grove. I went without my arms, which it was not my custom to do, but I was surprised when, turning my eyes to the sea, I presently saw a boat, at about a league and a half distance, standing in for the shore, with a shoulder of mutton sail, as they call it, and the wind blowing pretty fair to bring them in. Also I observed that they did not come from that side which the shore lay on, but from the southernmost end of the island. Upon this I called Friday in, and bade him lie close, for these were not the people we looked for, and that we did not know yet whether they were friends or enemies. In the next place I went in to fetch my perspective glass, to see what I could make of them, and having taken the ladder out I climbed up to the top of the hill, as I used to do when I was apprehensive of anything, and to take my view plainer without being discovered. I had scarce set my foot on the hill, when my eye discovered a ship lying at anchor, at about two leagues and a half distance from me south-southeast, but not above a league and a half from the shore. It appeared plainly to be an English ship, and the boat an English longboat. I cannot express the confusion I was in, though the joy of seeing a ship and one I had reason to believe was manned by my own countrymen, and consequently friends, was such as I cannot describe, but yet I had some secret doubts hanging about me, I cannot tell from whence they came, bidding me to be on my guard. I began to consider what business an English ship would have here, since it was not the way to or from any part of the world where the English had any traffic, and I knew there had been no storm to drive them in there as in distress, and that if they were English really— it was probable they were here upon no good design, and that I had better continue as I was than fall into the hands of thieves and murderers. When they were on shore I was fully satisfied they were Englishmen, at least most of them. One or two I thought were Dutch, but it did not prove so. There were in all eleven men, whereof three I found were unarmed, and, as I thought, bound. And when the first of four or five of them were jumped on shore, they took these three out of the boat as prisoners— one of the three I could perceive, using the most passionate gestures of entreaty, affliction, and despair. The other two lifted up their hands sometimes and appeared concerned indeed, but not so much as the first. I was perfectly confounded at the sight, and knew not what the meaning of it could be. Friday called out to me in English as well as he could, "'Oh, master, you see English mans eat prisoners as well as savage mans!' "'Why,' said I, "'do you think they are going to eat them, then?' Yes, says Friday, they will eat them. No, no, said I, Friday, I am afraid they will murder them indeed, but you may be sure they will not eat them. All this while, I had no thoughts of what the matter really was, but expected every moment the three prisoners would be killed, and once I saw one of the villains lift up his arm with a great cutlass or sword to strike one of the poor men, and I expected to see him fall every moment. I wished heartily now for my Spaniard and the savage that was gone with him, or that I had any way to have come undiscovered within shot of them, that I might have rescued the three men, for they had no firearms that I saw. After I had observed the outrageous usage of the three men by the insolent seamen, I saw that the fellows ran scattering about the land as if they wanted to see the country. I observed also that the three other men had liberty to go where they pleased, but that they sat down, all three, upon the ground, very pensive, and looked like men in despair. It was just at the top of high water when these people come on shore, and while partly they stood parleying with the prisoners they brought, and partly while they rambled about to see what kind of place they were in, they had carelessly stayed till the tide was spent and the water was ebbed considerably away, leaving the boat aground. 
It was my design, as I said before, not to have made any attempt until it was dark, but about two o'clock, being the heat of the day, I found that they were all gone straggling into the woods, and, as I thought, were all laid down to sleep. The three poor distressed men, too anxious for their condition to get any sleep, were, however, sat down under the shelter of a great tree at about a quarter of a mile from me, and, as I thought, out of sight of any of the rest. Upon this I resolved to discover myself to them and learn something of their condition. Immediately I marched with my man Friday at a good distance behind me, as formidable for his arms as I, but not making quite so staring a spectre-like figure as I did. I came as near them undiscovered as I could, and then, before any of them saw me, I called aloud to them in Spanish, "'What are ye, gentlemen?' They started up at the noise, but were ten times more confounded when they saw me and the uncouth figure I made. They made no answer at all, but I thought I perceived them just going to fly from me when I spoke to them in English. "'Gentlemen,' said I, "'do not be surprised at me. Perhaps you may have a friend near you when you do not expect it.' "'He must be sent directly from heaven, then,' said one of them very gravely to me, and pulling off his hat at the same time, "'for our condition is past the help of man.' "'All help is from heaven,' said I. "'But can you put a stranger in the way how to help you? "'For you seem to be in some great distress. "'I saw you when you landed, and when you seemed to make application to the brutes that came with you, "'I saw one lift up his sword to kill you.' "'The poor man.' with tears running down his face and trembling, looking like one astonished, returned, Am I talking to God or man? Is it a real man or an angel? Be in no fear about that, sir, said I. If God had sent an angel to relieve you, he would have come better clothed and armed after another manner than you see me. Pray lay aside your fears. I am a man, an Englishman, and disposed to assist you, you see. I have one servant only. We have arms and ammunition. Tell us freely, can we serve you? What is your case? Our case, sir, he said, is too long to tell you, while our murderers are so near. But in short, sir, I was commander of that ship. My men have mutinied against me. They have been hardly prevailed upon not to murder me, and, at last, have set me on shore in this desolate place, with these two men with me, one my mate, the other a passenger, where we expected to perish, believing the place to be uninhabited, and know not yet what to think of it. "'Where are those brutes, your enemies?' said I. "'Do you know where they are gone?' "'They are there, sir,' said he, pointing to a thicket of trees. "'My heart trembles for fear they have seen us and heard you speak. "'If they have, they will murder us all. "'Have they any firearms?' said I. "'He answered, they have only two pieces and one which they left in the boat. "'Well then,' said I, "'leave the rest to me. "'I see they are asleep. "'It is an easy thing to kill them all, but shall we rather take them prisoners?' He told me there were two desperate villains among them that were scarce safe to show any mercy to, but if they were secured, he believed all the rest would return to their duty. I asked him which they were. He told me he could not at that distance describe them, but he would obey my orders in anything I would direct. Well, said I, let us retreat out of their view or hearing, lest they awake, and we will resolve farther. So they willingly went back with me till the woods covered us from them. Look you, sir, said I. If I venture upon your deliverance, are you willing to make two conditions with me? He anticipated my proposals by telling me that both he and the ship, if recovered, should be wholly directed and commanded by me in everything, 
and if the ship was not recovered, he would live and die with me in what part of the world soever I would send him. And the two others said the same. Well, said I, my conditions are but two. First, that while you stay on this island with me, you will not pretend to any authority here, and if I put arms in your hands, you will, upon all occasions, give them up to me, and do no prejudice to me or mine upon this island, and in the meantime be governed by my order. Secondly, that if the ship is or may be recovered, you will carry me and my man to England, passage free. He gave me all the assurances that the invention and faith of man could devise, that he would comply with these most reasonable demands, and besides, would owe his life to me, and acknowledge it upon all occasions as long as he lived. Well then, said I, here are three muskets for you with powder and ball. Tell me next what you think is proper to be done. He showed all the testimony of his gratitude that he was able, but offered to be wholly guided by me. I told him I thought it was hard venturing anything, but the best method I could think of was to fire upon them at once as they lay, and if any were not killed at the first volley, and offered to submit, we might save them, and so put it wholly upon God's providence to direct the shot. He said very modestly that he was loath to kill them, if he could help it, but that those two were incorrigible villains, and had been the authors of all the mutiny in the ship, and if they escaped we should be undone still, for they would go on board and bring the whole ship's company and destroy us all. Well then, said I, necessity legitimates my advice, for it is the only way to save our lives. However, seeing him still cautious of shedding blood, I told him they should go themselves and manage as they found convenient. In the middle of this discourse we heard some of them awake, and soon after we saw two of them on their feet— I asked him if either of them were the men who, he had said, were the heads of the mutiny. He said, No. Well then, said I, you may let them escape, and Providence seems to have awakened them on purpose to save themselves. Now, said I, if the rest escape you, it is your fault. Animated with this, he took the musket I had given him in his hand and a pistol in his belt, and his two comrades with him, each man a piece in his hand. There were three more in the company, and one of them was also slightly wounded. By this time, I was come, and when they saw their danger, and that it was in vain to resist, they begged for mercy. The captain told them he would spare their lives, if they would give him any assurance of their abhorrence of the treachery they had been guilty of, and would swear to be faithful to him in recovering the ship, and afterwards in carrying her back to Jamaica, from whence they came. They gave him all the protestations of their sincerity that could be desired and he was willing to believe them, and spare their lives, and I was not against, only I obliged him to keep them bound, hand and foot, while they were upon the island. While this was doing, I sent Friday, with the captain's mate, to the boat, with orders to secure her, and bring away the oars and sail, which they did, and by the by, three straggling men, that were parted from the rest, came back again, upon hearing the guns fired, and seeing their captain, who was before their prisoner, now their conqueror, they submitted to be bound also. It now remained that the captain and I should inquire into one another's circumstances. I began first, and told him my whole history, which he heard with an attention even to amazement, and particularly at the wonderful manner of my being furnished with provisions and ammunition, and, indeed, as my story is a whole collection of wonders, it affected him deeply. But when he reflected from thence upon himself, and how I seemed to have been preserved there on purpose to save his life, the tears ran down his face, and he could not speak a word more. After this communication was at an end, 
I carried him and his two men into my apartment, leading them in just where I came out, namely at the top of the house, where I refreshed them with such provisions as I had, and showed them all the contrivances I had made during my long inhabiting this place. All I showed them, all I said to them, was perfectly amazing. But above all, the captain admired my fortification, and how perfectly I had concealed my retreat with a grove of trees, which, having been now planted near twenty years, and the trees growing much faster than in England, was become a little wood, and so thick it was impassable in any part of it, but at that one side where I had preserved my little winding passage into it. This, I told him, was my castle and my residence, but that I had a seat in the country, as most princes have, whither I could retreat upon occasion, and I would show him that too another time. But at present our business was to consider how to recover the ship. He agreed with me as to that, but told me he was perfectly at a loss what measures to take, for that there were still six and twenty hands on board who, having entered into a cursed conspiracy by which they had all forfeited their lives to the law, would be hardened in it now by desperation and would carry it on, knowing that if they were reduced, they should be brought to the gallows as soon as they came to England or to any of the English colonies, and that therefore there would be no attacking them with so small a number as we were. Upon this, I told him, the first thing we had to do was to stave the boat, which lay upon the beach, so that they might not carry her off, and taking everything out of her, leave her so far useless as not to be fit to swim." Accordingly, we went on board, took the arms which were left on board out of her, and whatever else we found there, which was a bottle of brandy and another of rum, a few biscuit cakes, a horn of powder, and a great lump of sugar in a piece of canvas, the sugar was five or six pounds, all which was very welcome to me, especially the brandy and sugar, of which I had been without many years. When we had carried all these things on shore, we knocked a great hole in her bottom, that if they had come strong enough to master us, yet they could not carry off the boat. Indeed, it was much in my thoughts that we could be capable to recover the ship, but my view was that if they went away without the boat, I did not much question to make her fit again to carry us away to the leeward islands and call upon our friends, the Spaniards, in my way. While we were thus preparing our designs, and had first, by main strength, heaved the boat up on the beach so high that the tide would not float her off at high-water mark, and besides had broken a hole in her bottom too big to be quickly stopped, and were sat down, musing what we should do, we heard the ship fire a gun, and saw her make a waft with her ancient as a signal for the boat to come on board. But no boat stirred, and they fired several times, making other signals for the boat. At last, when all their signals and firings proved fruitless, and they found the boat did not stir, we saw them, by the help of my glasses, hoist another boat off and row towards the shore, and we found, as they approached, that there were no less than ten men in her, and that they had firearms with them. As the ship lay almost two leagues from the shore, we had a full view of them as they came. The captain knew the persons and characters of all the men in the boat, of whom he said that there were three very honest fellows who, he was sure, were led into this conspiracy by the rest, being overpowered and frightened. But that as for the boatswain, who, it seems, was the chief officer among them, and all the rest, they were as outrageous as any of the ship's crew, and were, no doubt, made desperate in their new enterprise. 
As soon as they got to the place where their other boat lay, they ran their boat into the beach and came all on shore, hauling the boat up after them, which I was glad to see, for I was afraid they would rather have left the boat and anchor some distance from the shore with some hands in her to guard her, and so we should not be able to seize the boat. Being on shore, they ran all to the other boat, and it was easy to see they were under a great surprise to find her stripped and a great hole in the bottom. After this, they set up a great shout, but it was all to no purpose. Then they came all close in a ring, and fired a volley of their small arms, which indeed we heard, and the echoes made the woods ring, but it was all one. Those in the cave, we were sure, could not hear, and those in our keeping, though they heard it well enough, yet durst give no answer to them. They were surprised at this, as they told us afterwards, that they resolved to go all on board again to their ship, and let them know there that the men were all murdered, and the longboat staved. Accordingly, they immediately launched their boat again, and got all of them on board. The captain was terribly amazed, and even confounded at this, believing they would go on board the ship again, and set sail, giving their comrades up for lost, and so he should still lose the ship, which he was in hopes we should have recovered, but he was quickly as much frightened the other way. They had not been long put off with the boat, but we perceived them all coming on shore again. And they left three men in the boat, and the rest went up to the country to look for their fellows. This was a great disappointment to us, for now we were at a loss what to do, for our seizing those seven men on shore would be of no advantage to us if we let the boat escape, because they would then row away to the ship, and then the rest of them would be sure to weigh and set sail, and so our hope of recovering the ship would be lost. However, we had no remedy but to wait and see what the issue of things might present. The seven men came on shore, and the three who remained in the boat put her off to a good distance from the shore, and came to an anchor to wait for them, so that it was impossible for us to come at them in the boat. Those that came on shore kept close together, marching towards the top of the little hill under which my habitation lay, and we could see them plainly, though they could not perceive us. The captain made a very just proposal to me upon this consultation of theirs, namely, that perhaps they would all fire a volley again to endeavor to make their fellows hear, and that we should all sally upon them just at the juncture when their pieces were all discharged, and they would certainly yield, and we should have them without bloodshed. I liked the proposal, provided it was done while we were near enough to come up to them before they could load their pieces again. But this event did not happen, and we lay still a long time, very irresolute what course to take. At length, I told them there would be nothing to be done, in my opinion, till night, and then, if they did not return to the boat, perhaps we might use some stratagem with them in the boat to get them on shore. We waited a great while, and were very uneasy when we saw them all start up and march towards the sea. It seems they had such dreadful apprehensions upon them of the danger of the place that they resolved to go on board the ship again, give their companions over for lost, and so go on their intended voyage with the ship. As soon as I perceived them go towards the shore, I imagined they had given over their search and were for going back again, and the captain was ready to sink when I told him my thoughts. But I presently thought of a stratagem to fetch them back again, and which answered my end to a tittle. I ordered Friday and the captain's mate to go over the little creek westward towards the place where Friday was rescued, and at about half a mile distance I bade them halloo as loud as they could, and as soon as they heard the seamen answer them, they should return it again, and then, keeping out of sight, take around, and then wheel about again to me by such ways as I directed. 
They were just going into the boat when Friday and the mate hallooed, and they presently heard them, and answering, run along the shore westward, towards the voice they heard, when they were stopped by the creek, the water being up they could not get over, and called for the boat to come and set them over, as, indeed, I expected. When they had set themselves over, I observed that they took one of the three men out of her and left only two in the boat, having fastened her to a stump of a little tree on the shore. This was what I wished for, and immediately, leaving Friday and the captain's mate to their business, I took the rest with me, and crossing the creek out of their sight, we surprised the two men before they were aware, one of them lying on the shore between sleeping and waking, and, going to start up, the captain, who was foremost, ran in upon him and knocked him down, and then called to him in the boat to yield or he was a dead man. There needed very few arguments to persuade a single man to yield when he saw five men upon him and his comrade knocked down. Besides, this was, it seems, one of the three men who were not so hearty in the mutiny as the rest of the crew and, therefore, was easily persuaded not only to yield but afterwards to join very sincerely with us. In the meantime, Friday and the captain's mate so well managed their business with the rest that they drew them by hallooing and answering from one wood to another, till they not only heartily tired them, but left them where they were sure they could not reach back before it was dark, and indeed they were heartily tired themselves also by the time they came back to us. It was several hours after Friday came back to me before they came to their boat and we could hear foremost of them long before they came quite up, calling to those behind to come along, and could hear them answer and complain how lame and tired they were, and not able to come any faster, which was very welcome news to us. At length they came up to the boat, but it is impossible to express their confusion when they found the boat fast aground in the creek, and their two men gone. We could hear them telling one another they were gotten into an enchanted island, that either there were inhabitants in it, and they should all be murdered, or else there were devils or spirits in it, and they should be carried away and devoured. They hallooed again, and called their two comrades by their names, but got no answer. After some time we could see them by the little light, after some time we could see them by the little light there was, run about like men in despair, and that sometimes they would go and sit down in the boat to rest themselves, then come on shore again, and walk about, and so the same thing over again. My men would have fallen upon them in the dark, but I was willing to spare them, and kill as few of them as I could, being unwilling to hazard the killing any of our men, knowing the others were well armed. I resolved to wait, and make sure of them, and drew my ambuscade nearer, and ordered Friday and the captain to creep upon their hands and knees, and get as near them as they possibly could before they offered to fire. They had not been long in that posture, when the boatswain, who was the principal ringleader, and had now shown himself the most dispirited of all the rest, walked towards them with two more of their crew. The captain was so eager at having the principal rogue so much in his power that he could hardly have patience to let him come so near as to be sure of him, for he only heard his tongue before. But when they came nearer, the captain and Friday, starting up on their feet, let fly at them. The boatswain was killed on the spot. The next was shot through the body and fell just by him, though he did not die till an hour or two after, and the third ran for it. At the noise of the fire I immediately advanced with my whole army, which was now eight men, namely myself, Generalissimo, Friday, my lieutenant-general, the captain and his two men, and the three prisoners of war, whom we had trusted with arms. We came upon them indeed in the dark, 
so that they could not see our number, and I made the man they had left in the boat, who was now one of us, to call them by name, to try if he could bring them to parley, which fell out just as we desired. So he calls out as loud as he could to one of them, Tom Smith! Tom Smith! Tom Smith answered immediately, Who's that? Robinson! For it seems he knew his voice. The other answered, Aye, aye! For God's sake, Tom Smith, throw down your arms and yield, or you are all dead men at this moment. Who must we yield to? Where are they? says Tom Smith again. Here they are, says he. Here is your captain and fifty men with him have been hunting you this two hours. The boatswain is killed. Will Fry is wounded, and I am a prisoner. If you do not yield, you are all lost. Will they give us quarter then? says Tom Smith. And we will yield. I'll go and ask, if you promise to yield, says Robinson. So he asked the captain, and the captain himself then called out, You, Smith, you know my voice. If you lay down your arms immediately and submit, you shall all have your lives, all but Will Atkins. Upon this, Will Atkins cried out, For God's sake, captain, give me quarter. What have I done? They have all been as bad as I. Which was not true. For it seems this Will Atkins was the first man that laid hold of the captain when they first mutinied. However, the captain told him he must lay down his arms at discretion and trust to the governor's mercy, by which he meant me, for they called me governor. In a word, they all laid down their arms and begged their lives, and I sent the man that had parlayed with them, and two more, who bound them all. And then my great army of fifty men, which, particularly with those three, were in all but eight, came up and seized upon them all and upon their boat, only that I kept myself and one more out of sight for reasons of state. Our next work was to repair the boat and to think of seizing the ship. And as for the captain, now he had leisure to parley with them, he expostulated with them upon the villainy of their practices with him, and how certainly it must bring them to misery and distress in the end, and perhaps to the gallows. They all appeared very penitent and begged hard for their lives. As for that, he told them that the governor was an Englishman, and that he might hang them all there if he pleased. But, as he had given them quarter, he supposed he would send them to England, except Atkins, whom he was commanded by the governor to advise to prepare for death. For that he would be hanged in the morning." Though this was all a fiction of his own, yet it had the desired effect. Atkins fell upon his knees to beg the captain to intercede with the governor for his life, and all the rest begged of him, for God's sake, not to be sent to England. It now occurred to me that the time of our deliverance was come, and that it would be a most easy thing to bring these fellows in to be hearty in getting possession of the ship, so I retired in the dark from them, that they might not see what kind of a governor they had, and called the captain to me. When I called, as at a good distance, one of the men was ordered to speak again, and to say to the captain, Captain, the commander calls for you. And presently the captain replied, Tell his excellency, I am just a-coming. So they all believed the commander was just by with his fifty men. Upon the captain's coming to me, I told him my project for seizing the ship, which pleased him, and resolved to put it in execution the next morning. But in order to execute it with more art, and to be sure of success, I told him we must divide the prisoners, and that he should go and take Atkins, and two more of the worse of them, 
and send them bound to the cave where the others lay. So Friday and the two men who came on shore with the captain conveyed them to the cave as to a prison. The other I ordered to my bower where they were pinioned and left secure enough. To these in the morning I sent the captain, who was to enter into a parley with them, in a word, to try them and tell me whether he thought they might be trusted or no, to go on board and surprise the ship. He talked to them of the injury done him, of the condition they were brought to, and that though the governor had given them quarter for their lives as to the present action, yet that if they were sent to England, they would all be hanged in chains, but that if they would join in so just an attempt as to recover the ship, he would have the governor's engagement for their pardon. Candlelight Stories Audio Production 